a trigger warning on this episode it discusses uh, in detail and at some length suicide and topics around suicide this is h hour become a patron of h hour at patron.charliecharlie1.com and pick up h hour merchandise at shop.charliecharlie1.com enjoy this episode People, I don't know. It's a weird thing. We're recording, by the way. <laughs> people, okay. people like to. Uh, it's not like to look at themselves. Oh. It's a fascinate. It's a fascination thing, isn't it? I think it's because it's. I think because being able to look at yourself on a screen is still relatively new technology <laughs> in the history of like humankind. Human evolution. We, we've yeah. only had it around. We've only had the ability to do it for what a hundred years. Yeah, yeah, hundred years. And, I, and live, you know, in the last how long? Not, not, not very long, is it? No, yeah. Have you ever watched? Do you ever ever watched any of the um, old old movies, the black and white nineteen thirties type stuff? And before, yeah, and before the the silent movie stuff. Silent movie stuff. Like, uh, have you ever watched Nosferatu? No, I don't. Oh my god! Uh, I went through a I went through a a stage a few years ago. I say a few years ago. Must have been yeah, seven, eight, nine years ago now. Uh, of watching old school shit. I don't know why I'm doing it. <laughs> and one of them was Nosfra- Nosferatu. Nosferatu, was, I think, is 1923 or 1917, right? And I'm going to bring it up on the screen. When you see this, when you see the character, you will know exactly what I'm on about. Nosferatu stares. Right, watch this. This. You know, you yes. know this, right? With yeah. the, the shadow of the creepy guy that says the long fingers. Yeah. Right, Nosferatu was... Uh, 1922, there it was, it was made. Nosferatu was a... It was made in 1922. Then it's basically a rip-off of Dracula. Right. right? And when they made it, whoever it was at the time who did films and shit, kind of said, this is a rip-off of Dracula. No, get it in the bin. And they, they basically got archived. They did nothing with it. It didn't get published. You know, It didn't get put out into... We didn't have cinemas then. Anyway, it didn't get released, right? And in, I think it was the 40s. I think it was during the Second World War. And they uncovered in some archive somewhere this film. And they, what is this? And they, and they, I was going to say, they put it on there. They didn't put it on the TV. They watched, got the rail out. <laughs> rail out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they chucked it in the Blu-ray. <laughs> and, and they watched it, and they're like, "This is awesome." And they released Nosferatu 20 years after it made. Wow. And it is amazing. It is a proper good. And it's. The only rip-off of Dracula that is, it's a vampire. And that's it. Yeah. And then the other one is um, Metropolis. You must have yeah, seen it, Metropolis. Yeah. Is it years ago? Though? That is one of the wildest films I've ever watched. Wild. Wild. That's the one. It's a silent movie. Yes, yeah, silent. Proper silent movie where you'll see a depiction. They'll, the characters are doing something on screen. Then it'll switch to... Then the next scene is literally... Just a, a picture of the words that they just they, they were supposed to be saying, and then show some more movement. But it's the one where it's the story of a, a rich guy in a big city, a son of a rich guy, a very well, you know, upper class, loaded. His his dad runs the city, but the city the, the thing that makes the city live and keeps it all going and keeps all the mechanicals and all that working and the petrol pumps going all that shit. It's all done by the working class, and they all they all work underground constantly, and they can only go down big lifts, and they're underground, and they 
just they manhandle this massive machinery underground but it's science fiction at the time that they did it i think that was 1923 unreal Unreal. science fiction but dot 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 (laughs) yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's about him it's about him realizing as i recall this isn't right they shouldn't be living like this but he goes down to join them to work and then it's 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 crazy but there's like it's like robots and stuff in it. It is a crazy um, movie. I have seen that, but it was a very, very long time yeah, ago. I need to watch it again. Yeah, yeah. See, I've been trying to convince the missus to watch it. She's, and like, <laughs> she's I'm, like, what? Give, I'm spinning it. Oh, I'm spinning it to her, and she's like, "No fucking <laughs> way!" On <laughs> sounds rubbish. It sounds rubbish. Yeah. What was, the, what was the other old ones? That? Oh, I grew up on the old, you know, all the comedy Charlie Chaplin's and the Laurel and Hardy. I've never watched any Charlie Chaplin. Oh uh, yeah, I, I've never watched any of it. I've watched the I've watched the segment from the the Dictator. Right. The Great yeah. Dictator. Is that the film? Yeah. Where the, it's the monologue where he's... Have you ever seen that monologue where he, he's... Uh, he, machine men with machine minds. Do you know, do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, I think I do. Yeah, it's a... It's a cracking... It's a, it's a, God, I'm trying to pull it up, actually. Let's, you've got, got a better right, memory than me. Got a right I'm talking 40 here. years ago I watched these. I know, well, let's pull You're this younger up. younger than One me, second. Yeah. I, I've only recently had this ability to pull something up on the screen like this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use it and abuse it. So, Chaplin, dictator, speech... I think it's only a it's only a minute or so long. Watch this. Oh, here we go. This have you seen? Yes, this? yes. Oh, let's watch it. Come on. Energy saving combusters <laughs> are curries. This Samsung Series Five 11 kilo washing machine with Space Max and heat pumps. Oh, thank you. Time. I'm sorry. Why isn't it on there? I need to watch all of this. What an actor. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. (laughs) Our knowledge has made us cynical. And and relevant now. Absolutely relevant So relevant. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent and all will be lost. The aeroplane and the radio have brought us closer together. The very nature of these inventions cries out for the goodness in men, cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world, millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the Was way... Was this in the 30s, progress. before the fascists the came into power, was it? I think they were obviously coming. When was that film? We'll return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think and what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men. Machine men. 1940. Made 1940. So Hitler's in power it's and he makes this. doing some horrible stuff, yeah. You have the love of humanity in your hearts. You don't hate, only the unloved hate. The unloved and the unnatural. Soldiers, 
Don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you, you the people have the power, the power to create machines, the power to create happiness. You the people have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Then in the Should we make this? <laughs> We make it today. Day, yeah. Oh my God! But it's amazing that yeah, you know, lots of the silent actors didn't they? That they failed as soon as they that they came into speech on films. A lot of them couldn't talk very well, really? and loads of them they've been absolute massive stars in oh, the silent movies. And then for whatever reason, they weren't very good at you know projecting their voices, talking and acting. So they could, uh, and they all loads of them just in the nineteen twenties went from being massive celebs to being absolutely nothing. Kind of reminds me of the guy who played Darth Vader, actual the, the actual guy who was the body of Darth yes, Vader, yeah. and he's a Bristolian. He had to be on set and say all the words, didn't he? Uh, so because all the actors had to respond to him. Yes. So he would do all the words of Darth Vader and, <laughs> and deliver them as Darth Vader, and then when the films were released, all dubbed over with uh, yes. what's his name? Oh God, James Earl James, yeah, James Earl. Earl James Earl Jones. Yes. Is it James Earl Jones? James Earl. Tears on. James Earl. <laughs> yeah. Imagine Darth Vader with a Bristolian accent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would that would have been cool. Goodness yeah. me. James Earl. American actor. James yeah. Earl Jones. Goodness me. Cool. Right. That's that. That's that. <laughs> right on on the tangent. How do we get how do we start that? Um okay, where do we start? Pandemic. Uh yeah, you mentioned about before uh, when we are before we start recording, well, just before I start recording. So, in the in the lead up to the pandemic, M, your eldest, yeah, eldest, second eldest, second eldest, yeah, diagnosed with autism. So she'd been diagnosed. She was nineteen in the lead up to the pandemic. She was diagnosed with autism when she was about fifteen. And we'd struggled for for years and years and years uh, with her some of her behaviours and stuff. And like what? Well. From the age of about two, uh, she would have a tantrum and uh, it was on a different scale to the other kids, you know, kind of throw herself at a wall or something. If she oh, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. And we went to the doctors, went to the schools where she kind of grew up and said, look, we're having this behavioural problems. What, you know, what is it? And they were like, oh, it's just terrible twos, terrible twos. And really, she, she really struggled with her emotions sometimes. She Most loving beautiful girl most loving girl so kind so caring and and then she could just drop and you know her emotions could get the worst of her and uh yeah she was diagnosed with dyslexia when she was 10 uh and that was a, us paying for it we, we realized that her writing and her reading ability was worse than her five-year-old brother so it's like okay. how old was she she was 10, 10, 10, 10, sorry, 10 yeah, yeah 10. so 10 and so we uh we, we went for that and uh, little did we realise at the time that dyslexia it, it is common in if you've got autism, okay. high-functioning autism. Anyhow, we got to, she was about, her behaviour, kind of, the erratic behaviour just kind of got worse. And she was uh, 13, you know, going through puberty, doing all that stuff. And she had a first suicide attempt. And she had it over between... Th- 13 and 15 she had uh, a number of suicide attempts ended up in hospital and we ended up under cams what brought on what brought on the first one it was just uh, being unable to handle her emotions it was simply and when we 
we didn't know at the time god we were in you know family in crisis you know didn't know which way to turn and we got all the services involved you know social services the education after the first attempt yeah oh yeah cams were involved There's no indication before one you know she, she we knew her emotions were all over the place but we didn't realize how all over the place they were and uh we were under cams or em was under cams for for two years and we were you know buggered as a family quite frankly we we were just in emotion i was working you know but it was just trying to cope with that the pressure of that working and impact on the other kids and stuff tell people what comes is sorry uh child and adolescent mental health it's the it's the young people's mental health services you know under 18 you go into cams over 18 they kind of pass you into adult mental health we, we live in Norfolk, uh, and it, it was under special measures at the time. And then when we were, she was about 15, we were really struggling. And one of our friends in the village, who's a retired psychiatrist, uh, knew about our problems. We were quite open to people in the village and, and stuff. And she said, have you thought about autism? And it's, no. And she said, yeah. The, the, so this was kind of 2015. And she said, if you go back 20, 25 years, girls don't have autism or didn't have autism because they're very, very good at masking it very very good at masking it whereas if a boy has autism they really show it quite openly but girls they try it they're cleverer than us so they try and mask it so you did have it before 25 years ago it just wasn't known it wasn't it wasn't diagnosed yeah it was the the medics just thought it was just a boy thing rather than a both sexes thing and uh so we 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 tried to get through that through the nhs we, we said to cams you know autism we're interested could you have a look at autism and they said no we we don't think it's autism. But we then went to the National Autistic Society uh, and did some kind of online diag- online assessments, us and our family, saying about M's behaviour. And all of them indicated we should have a proper diagnosis. So we took her down to a place called... How the fuck did CAMS not realise then? I'm not think it was a... They thought well, it... So they kind of spring it back. They thought it was us. They did think it was... Uh, as soon as I said I was in the military... They were just like, oh, you know, you're you're a bad dad, basically, for being in the military type thing. And really? Yeah, it was. It was. Oh, you know, he's been through some dodgy stuff. It must be all to do with dad. And we're going. Well, hang on a minute. We've got a load. The ignorance of that attitude. It, the ignorance of that attitude. It annoyed me a little bit at the time, and I think the annoying thing was that M wasn't our only child. We've got four kids, yeah. and and it was great when we got. <coughs> When we really reached out for help uh, and we got social services involved, and I was, I'm the last person to think that I'd ever have social services in my family, and the lady that came and, uh, and round to us and helped us to start with, first thing she said is, all your kids are open to us. We didn't know what that was, and it was like, shit, that means they're going to assess all our kids to see if we're suitable parents. And Linda, this social <laughs> social worker from uh from norfolk she came to our house she was a hard lady really really hard lady you know she'd worked in some of the the hard institutions and she interviewed all our kids one by one and uh i can remember we were you know as a mum and dad we were really struggling with that and really worried about what our future held and she came after interviewing the last one she she came and gave us both a big hug and said you've got three kids there that are just normal they're just they're normally adjusted you might not be perfect parents, but you're good parents. Uh, and then there's something different with them. And so cams were all over this, but it was all, you know, oh, it must be some, the way we've treated her and stuff. Yeah. Anyhow, we got uh, we went down to the National Autistic Society, uh, Lorna Wing Centre in Bromley in Kent. It's one of two centres of excellence for autism assessment. Uh, private, again, we had to pay for that. Thank goodness we could afford it. You know, <coughs> it just shows how 
yeah, it's, it's not fair. Society isn't fair. Why wasn't the NHS an option? Because oh, it was through camps. It was through camps. We went to see our GP. And they wouldn't do it. Uh, okay. They wouldn't do it. Yeah. So we went to see our GP, and our GP was lovely. And he said, look, the last person I tried to get an autism assessment through the NHS was going to take over two years. I've heard the same recently. And M, M was 15. and she, now, I think. Yeah, yeah so... We reached out, as I say, to the National Autistic Society, and they took us in. Uh, just a day's assessment down in Bromley in Kent. They had uh, me and my wife went in with one doctor and went in with another doctor, had three hours separately talking about her life and her emotions and stuff. We went away for lunch, came back, and the two doctors got us together. M was away with one of the other staff, and they just looked at us and said, I don't know how you've coped, and I don't know how M's coped for 15 years. And this is two years after the first attempt? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So this is two years. This is nineteen. This is when she was fifteen. Don't know how you've coped. Uh, don't know, more importantly, don't know how Emma's coped with her. It's clear she's got high functioning autism, and then what was Asperger's syndrome, uh, or that same. You know, to most people, she could function absolutely fine, but then she would come back home and just need space, need time, and that's what we didn't realise before the diagnosis was. You know. She'd go out to school, come back, and a simple request, um, it's tea time, can you come down and have a cup of tea, you know, have your tea, that could cause her to absolutely blow. Whereas once you know you're dealing with high-functioning autism, you can phrase that question, your, your tea's ready when you want it, so it gives her the option of not to come down, you're not putting demands on her. And God, after she was 15, we kind of, we weren't perfect at all, but we learnt how to try and cope and she learned how to cope with it struggling to go into school we got support from private education companies she went into school got some gcses went to art college <coughs> she was a fantastic artist uh did did went to art college in Deerham in norfolk then she did a fitness apprenticeship she loved fitness it really helped with her autism that just going to the gym and working out really took some of the pressure off her and she also loved driving. She, I've never seen a girl work so hard to pass a driving test because it just gave her the freedom. We live rurally in Norfolk and just be able to go out on the road. So, yeah, she was, and, and then she, she was just working in our little community pub. I said I like beer earlier. We've got a lovely little pub. We all own it in the village, and she was working in there as the pandemic hit. Uh, okay, so, uh, while well, she was still in college, she she'd finished college. She'd finished college. She'd finished, college, she'd finished her apprenticeship with a fitness training. Just it was only a level two, just an initial step. She she very much typical autism. <clears throat> tries a bit of that, comes away. Tries a bit of that, comes away. Uh, she was a fantastic artist. Honestly, the stuff that I've got hanging her art pieces hanging up at home are just incredible. What was she? In, what was she in, did she paint? Or did paint. She draw? It was paint. It was paint. She. I've got a, a piece of her. She did for a GCSE. It's just a self-portrait of her, and it's about two foot by three foot and when she died it was hanging up in the the headmaster's office at school so we had to go back into her school they'd kept all her old paintings and stuff because they were so good he had it in there so when she painted it he put it up yeah yeah she so so it was only after she died that we realized that the school had still got it and it's like oh can we went back to the school and said please so we still got those paintings she'd done a couple and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She did a brilliant one of Ian McKellen as well, and she and she'd even done some private commissions as well for people. So wow, she was an incredible artist. And you know, the talent she got, she could never see it, but the talent she got was amazing. What what led to the um, the? So you said she tried to take her own life a couple of times yeah. before succeeding. Yeah. Um, what led to the second time? It was just. In terms of the, when she was 13 to 15 in that period, 
roller, roller coaster without any autism or anything else. Yeah, so for anyone. it was just life. Yeah. I think kids going through <laughs> puberty without autism, with you know, sorry, with autism, just an absolute undiagnosed autism is a is a nightmare. And if you look at the government's late, well, the new cross government suicide prevention strategy they launched four weeks ago, uh, one of the key. Uh, areas that they're looking at there and funding is support for people with autism because there are there's a higher suicide rate in people with autism so that they're, they're, they're working on you know how to support that do they know what the rate is pardon do they know what the rate is uh no but they're looking into it john moore's university are looking into it uh, but it is higher than a neurotypical mm. age group but autism features i think there were four uh, young people autism people with autism young mums as well yeah. uh, were the kind of target areas for the, the government's kind of cross-government suicide prevention strategy but yeah, yeah. autism brings a increased risk of suicide mm. which is so you need to know where and that's our story that's the three dad story you know is is where to reach out for help and that's hopefully where if one person listening to this can say to their kid their grandkid or whatever you know i've heard this old bloke talking on your podcast and they know where to reach out for help and try and get that suicide prevention support, then mm. this interview has been massively worth it. So when, um, so she's working at the pub in Deerham. Yeah, I know no, Deerham. No, so Deerham's near Swanton Morley. Deerham's, so no, she, our village is about 20 miles west of there, near, near RAF Marham. And uh, she was working in our community pub. We bought it in 2015-16 as a, a, a brilliant pub. Lots of real air in there. Big nice. Big beer festival every uh, every the first weekend in September. Lots lots and lots of beers. Yeah. So uh, she she was she was working in the, in the pub, and uh, the lockdown was coming, and we knew lockdown was coming. I was with work. I was planning with the local authorities and stuff, doing lots of planning now about what's going to happen. So we were talking about the pandemic. My and grab that milk. Yes, yeah, sorry. My my nephew in uh, in Italy was at the heart of the, the epicenter of the pandemic. So he was uh, he was watching people, you know, keel over in the streets. He was confined to his flat. Oh, really? So, as a family, we were <clears throat> massively aware of what was going on around the world, mm. and M was getting worried about it. Um, if you so, this is now kind of a week before the prime minister announced lockdown on the on the Monday <clears throat> morning. Uh, we start coughing in the house and it's at the time it's if your family's coughing you have to isolate so we uh we realize we've got to isolate and uh i phone up work and say yeah we're isolating doesn't matter i can still work from home it really didn't matter for me uh but m uh was out at the gym at the time and we phoned her up and said m when you come back we're coughing in the house so you've got to isolate and she she put the phone, she was angry, put the phone down, then phoned back about 10 seconds later and said, right, she kind of clicked into action. If you can't go out, I'll go and do a big Tesco shop for you. Hmm. Bless her. So there's a 19-year-old coming back from the gym in a gym bunny kit, went to Tesco's and she phoned me up halfway round and, Dad, uh, I need some more money. She was always skint. She never... She, she, <laughs> she, she, she was always skint. She's 19. But she never, she, she never <clears throat> spent more than she got. She always... But she, she spent it all, put it like that. It all went, it always went. But so she uh, she was going around Tesco's. And I don't know if you remember, uh, kind of mid-2021, uh, sorry, 2020, 
uh, sorry, mid-March 2020, they were talking about food hoarding and everyone doing all that sort of stuff. So there's Em in a gym bunny kit, and she has now got a, a big trolley load full of food. She goes up to the, the Tesco's aisle to pay, and this old couple stop her and say, what are you doing with that girl, young girl? Why are you hoarding all that food? Oh, God. Don't give a chance to explain that, hang on, my mum and dad, the six of us in the house, mum and dad have just gone into isolation. I'm doing the food shop for us, you know, me and my brother and my two sisters and mum and dad for the next week or so. And she paid for it and she came back home and she was in tears when she got back home on that Monday, just that somebody out of the blue, this old couple out of the blue, could be so nasty to a young girl. And we cheered her up a bit. This £120 shop... There's a lot of chocolate in it. You can imagine, <laughs> you can imagine a 19-year-old. Dad's paid for this. There's loads of, yeah, it wasn't exactly a balanced diet, but it was it was cool. And we uh, we we thought everything was okay. Uh, we sat down that evening and started to watch the Disney films. And uh, Lord of the Rings was going, right. We'll watch the Lord of the Rings. We got if we're going to isolate, we've got so much on. And we our house in in Norfolk, we had a lovely big back garden with about an acre. Quite a big back garden. We'd, we'd built it. Oh, massive. It's yeah, huge. And uh, <coughs> so we, there was no no dramas. You know, if you wanted to kick a ball around or run around, we got loads of space around. Not like Christopher, my nephew, who lived in a flat in northern Italy, who could go out once a week to do his shopping. Oh, so we God. were we were massively fortunate. And so on the Monday night and the Tuesday, we were just watching our watching Disney films. I was still working during the day, and it was all cool. And then M. The three things that M really loved doing, going to the gym, as I've already said, she loved that. Working in the pub, because she would absolutely, she worked behind the bar. I used to go in, I do go in there on a Thursday night with my, my with my mates. A group of dads of a certain age go in there and of all different backgrounds, some ex-military, some, uh, you know, have nothing to do with the military, just, just a load of us. And she would be behind the bar and she would absolutely hold court. She was one of those girls that could <coughs> absolutely hold court. But then she'd come back home and she'd just need three or four hours to chill out on her own because she'd put so much effort into that but she could see work you know the pub was going to close and then on the Wednesday morning she woke up and she was quite agitated she was very agitated she wanted to go up she was coughing by now and she wanted to go up uh, to the coast and Stanton take our little doggy for a walk and we said you can't you're coughing you could you know spread it Uh, so the rules were at the time Mm. if you're coughing you stay in and your family stays in and she was really agitated about this and really upset about it. And she just went outside and slammed the door into our back garden. And when we'd been under, uh, Emma had been under cams before, all the specialists said, if Emma has, ever has a bit of a fit, don't chase her because it could agitate the situation, could aggravate it. Just let her go off, cool down. And that's what we'd done for years. And she would always go, we've got some trees, and she'd always go and just sit in the bottom of the trees. She'd got dens in the trees where her and her uh, brother and sister would, would made dens when they were little and stuff. <coughs> Uh, anyhow, we we went out about ten minutes later to try and find her. Fifteen minutes later, and we went into uh, and we couldn't find her. And then we we found her, and that was the day our lives changed forever. The the pressure of being kept in. She tried to take her own life. It was just our, our world. Just there's no words to describe what it. Just hell on earth was unleashed. Devastation. Uh, just was was unleashed uh we got her to hospital i had to yeah we got her to hospital uh that was on the the wednesday and the hospital didn't really know what to do with her in terms of she went into critical care but because 
it, it, it was the start of the pandemic. No one knew how to te- treat. She was still alive. She was, st- yeah. But I managed to kind of get some of her heartbeat back again. Uh, so she was still just about alive. So she went into intensive care. What had she done? What had she done? I, I don't want to go into that. Okay. Yeah, because yeah. It, yeah, but she, uh, she, uh, she went into intensive care. We, could, my wife, went in the ambulance with her. We had all the world's ambulances and police pitch up. So. Yeah, there's no hiding it in a little village in Norfolk. Went into so myself and my eldest daughter kind of put something out on Facebook, said, you know, Em's tried to take her own life. She's in critical care. We don't know what's going to happen. And the love and care that suddenly we got from the community was Because people are already aware from previous, right? Yeah, yeah they were yeah, aware. Yeah. She's grown up in the village. She'd lived in that village for yeah. all of her life. And she'd, you know, been to the football club there. She'd been to school there. She worked in the pub there. She knew more people in the village than, than we did. <clears throat> and some people knew about struggles as well. But the love that we had from the neighbours, just the whole village, was was incredible. We couldn't see her for two days in hospital simply because she went put onto the critical care COVID ward. So in those days, there were two critical care wards, one if you had got COVID and one if you hadn't. If you got COVID, then you couldn't have anyone to see you. So it took two days to get a, a diagnosis. You know, has she got COVID or hasn't she? And... Uh, on the Friday night, we were told, yeah, you can come and see her. She hasn't got COVID. The, the, her cough was a common cold. So she just, common cold. It's like, shit. We got into hospital and they said, there's no chance of her surviving now. That's it. Her brain uh, is, she's brain dead. We can't see anything. So although her body's alive. So there we were looking at our, you know, baby daughter. Uh, they told us that she'd signed the organ donation register when she was 12, when she'd started high school. They'd obviously had a talk from the organ donation world. And we, we then went through the next couple of days. The only pinprick of light in this whole mess was the fact that her organs might go and help somebody else. But the whole organ donation process was buggered up at the time simply because all of the experts that normally do the organ donation process were now on the COVID critical care wards. So uh, anaesthetists who would normally administer the anaesthetics were no longer doing anaesthetist stuff. They were doing critical care doctor stuff. So it was a real messed up situation. But every time an organ donor was found, they'd come and find us and say, you know, we've got someone for her kidneys or someone for a liver. So for a heart, it's a biggie. They found a 14-year-old girl for a heart, which is like, wow, that's cool. And then uh, on the Sunday, we uh, they got everything lined up. They got the operating theatres. They got all the ambulances. She's still alive at this point. Yeah, she's still yeah. alive. So when they uh, – organ donation process, the staff at the hospital were just so caring and so lovely. And all we're doing is trying to keep her alive to keep the organs in the best condition as possible. For, so the donors stand as much chance. And they don't tell you – where the donors live or anything like that they just tell you that we found a donor we found a donor and then they tell you afterwards or they tell you the age and the sex of the the donor and that's it so to know that her heart was going to a 14 year old was just like brilliant you know that's that's someone's life absolutely transformed and Emma got a good heart you know in terms of (laughs) in more ways than one but bless her she was you know massively generous but fit as well and then, yeah, on the Sunday, we, we held her as we turned the life support off and just our world just imploded again. We, you know, to, to watch your daughter just slip away in front of you. And then as soon as she's died, as soon as the life support, you know, is gone, they whisk her away because they've got the most important thing then is to keep the organs as fresh as possible. So they've got to get into the operating theatre. 
And then that was the last time we saw her because we couldn't see her after that because there were no rules about, they didn't know how to treat people in or, or people who died in uh, with the undertakers. So we couldn't go and see her lying in rest or anything like that. That was it. So we we got back again, just we got back on the, on the Sunday, just, you know, we just lost our daughter. Our, our family is just, uh, we got no... Yeah, the support that we had suddenly kind of disappeared off the following day because the following day was when the Prime Minister announced formal lockdown. Fucking hell, man. So it was just shit. We couldn't have anyone to see us at home in our house. So when you lose someone, you know, you normally have mum and dad come over or your aunts, you know, grandparents for M, aunts and uncles, cousins, friends, anything like that. Nobody could come in the house. So we're literally, and then we're petrified as you know a mum and a dad that we're gonna catch covid and we won't be able to go to em's funeral and it was just it was just everything was shit the the uh the, our friends were fantastic people did shopping for us so we didn't have to go shopping so we didn't catch covid you know the support that we had I realised when this happened, this is a big kind of mental health thing for me. I've been through some, as I've said, kind of some, some dodgy times in the military and I've been trained for those and I hadn't been trained for this and I knew I couldn't cope with this at all. So I, I needed help. And I think that was for me personally, knowing that I needed help and reaching out and saying to everyone I knew, shit, we as a family need help because we don't know how we're going to get through this. How, how, were, how, was, uh, how was your wife and your kid? Oh, kids just coping? broken, absolutely broken. Why, you know, And th- that still goes on, and it's three years on now, and it's like a bomb goes off in your family. And you try and build it back together, there's huge chunks of it missing, and it doesn't look the same at all. Uh, it's so hard. You know, everyone that's... Death by suicide, death however someone dies is horrendous however a loved one dies but death by suicide brings a load more emotions that perhaps aren't there in other types of death you what, know how do you mean so you feel guilty you feel massively guilty about should i have done something should you know you, your job as a dad is to bring your kids up into the world isn't it that that's your main task in life and you failed so you've you feel you know should i should I have done some more? There's blame there. You start to feel anger towards the person that's died. There's because why have you put us through this? What, what, you've done something, and if you could see the devastation that's in your mom, in your brothers and sisters, you know, in your family, you should see how that affects them. You probably wouldn't have done this. So the the the, the and I learned obviously went through this at the time. But a few months later, I did a course with Mind, uh, a suicide bereavement course, and it talks about the complex emotions connected with suicide. This, this is one of it's one of the things that really, really uh, pisses me off when you see when you see ignorant or ignorant people and say that people who take their own lives are basically self self centered self centered assholes. Yeah, and you know, uh, from experience, nothing can be further than the truth. We, yeah, I kind of we found a letter, or I found a letter. Police, you know, but someone dies at home, police all come round and try and, but they missed a letter, and uh, <coughs> we, I found found a letter uh, about four weeks later. Uh, to kind of answer your question there and it's a letter from M and it was a folded up piece of A4 and she said I'm sorry on there and I opened it up and it was like shit this is her final note to us 
and it was her reasons for taking a life in the letter oh my god and she genuinely thought at that time that this was the right thing to do to ease her pain and she wanted just to have a happy life afterwards honestly it was just so going from she wanted to move on to a better place yeah she, yeah she don't be sad you guys go and have a lovely life don't be sad by what i've done it's like, oh my god she so she genuinely thought that but there was yeah it was just so yeah to answer that question of yours no this was a m wasn't had obviously prepared something she wasn't going to, she, and the trigger event was not being allowed to go up to the coast you know not being allowed to go out to drive but uh, so she'd been thinking for, for about she it must for have a while. done what she must have done mm. to write the letter because when she went out the door, you know, it was immediate. We found her ten minutes later. So she that letter ah. was a, a, a well thought out, Jesus. well considered it, and yeah, just so she'd obviously arranged it or planned it, and then she was, yeah, which is just horrendous. She so she hadn't been at me for a while. Yeah, and we don't know when that letter was written, but, it, you know, in the previous couple of weeks, probably. And, and she, you know, I said we'd we'd been planning, I'd been planning at work with the pandemic and her cousin had been in. Uh, she was getting frustrated about the pandemic. She knew she, she'd kind of had a few emotional outbursts about it, saying, you know, this pandemic is effect, going to affect loads of people's mental health and blah, blah, blah. So she was, we hadn't realised the impact this was going to have on her mental health. God, if I had, I'd have said break the rules and drive the car up to bloody Stanton because that, that would have, yeah, solved the issue. But it was just a, a young girl who saw her future just disappear and couldn't cope and took it away. And yeah, it was, it was just shit. We had her funeral two and a half weeks later, six people at a funeral. It was just, and we got back home, and uh, we'd literally—it was just—we left our our house. We went a long way around the village, and there were loads of people from the village out, you know, obeying social distancing rules, all at the end of their gardens and stuff, all taking their dogs for a walk at exact same time. And but we got to the the. It's on the way to the creme. Yeah, yeah. But there's no church service, no no proper funerals. It was literally a 25 minute slot (laughs) at the creme with six of us, and we got back home and. We're just broken. We, I can't describe it. My wife's absolutely just broken. And she just says, Tim, no one will remember Em in a year's time. She's gone now. That's it. That was all for nothing. And that kind of lodged away in my in my head massively. It was just like, I've got to do something. I don't know what. I've got to do something to, to fight back against this this suicide because it's got, it can't not be in vain. And it was about a week and a half after a suicide so about four weeks after she died my, my eldest daughter bear in mind we're in absolute carnage still we don't just getting up in them have you seen the uh the the, the speech by admiral william mcraven uh it's a u.s navy seal four-star mm. seal and it's a if you just google it it's it's got uh it's about kind of getting through hard times and I'd seen it, and I didn't go and look at it particularly, but I just remember this speech that he gives, very inspirational speech, and he talks about getting out of bed in the morning and making your bed in the morning. And his whole point is if you get up in the morning, you're going through a hard time, and you make your bed, and you do nothing else all day, when you come back to the bed that evening, you look at your bed and you go, I achieved something this morning. And so, and that, I honestly, when I didn't know, when M died, getting up just making breakfast for the kids it was a mountain to climb and I remember that speech by the Admiral and thought shit I need to do something I need to do something 
and I would make our bed and I'd make all the kids' beds. So at least when all of us went back to bed in the evening, the beds were made. And I, I don't know where that came from when I was in that absolute pit of despair. I also massively reached out to every man and his dog that would, would listen to us. But we were about you know, Padre at work and he came around and stuff, but it was all at Safa and all these uh, mind, but they were all outside only and because of social distancing and stuff. We, uh, it was about... I say four weeks after M died, it's about a week and a half after a funeral. And Annabelle, she's my eldest daughter, Miss Sensible. She was at university, but back home from university. Uh, she came to me, and we're in this pit of despair. And she just, Dad, I've been speaking to this bloke in Manchester. And I'm going, Oh shit, Annie, what are you doing to us? You know, we haven't got the capacity. No, 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 Dad, it's not like that. I've seen, they've just, they're in the same situation as us, they've just lost their daughter. And I've been speaking to the bloke is Mike. Mike's a firefighter at Manchester Airport. And uh, he lost his daughter, Beth. She was 17, five days after M. You, so I got Mike's phone number and texted him and basically said, Mike, mate, because no, when, when you're going through this, it's so hard to talk to anyone that hasn't been through it about it because you don't want to burden your family with, and your friends with your thoughts. Do you enjoy this podcast? Do you enjoy listening to H-Hour? If you do, become a patron. Patrons get access to all of the podcasts before anyone else. They get early, they get released early to patrons. Patrons also get access to secret interviews, private interviews that are done with every single guest and they are not released publicly. They are only released to patrons. They're called icebreakers. Patrons also get access to a whole host of other benefits from freebie giveaways throughout the year to invites to ev exclusive invites to events to private Q&As with some of the guests uh, via web calls. So become a patron. Costs a fiver a month, there or thereabouts. Uh, I think it's a fiver at the month at the moment, so that's five UK pounds. And um, you can do it by just search for H-Hour Patrons online or you can go to patreon.com forward slash HK podcasts. Easy peasy. Thank you to all my existing patrons and thank you to you, a future patron. And so I reached out to Mike, you know, just going, Mike, here we're in the same, so sorry about Beth, it's, you know, let's talk. And Mike uh, was, how was Mike, 56-year-old burly firefighter from Manchester Airport, you know, bit of a, rode the Atlantic twice. Got rescued, <laughs> got rescued once. Doesn't matter, but, but kind of an outdoor type, big ex triathlete. His knees are knackered now, and I, I spoke to him the following day, so a month after Emma died, and we just agreed there and then. These two blokes who didn't know each other, we were gonna whenever we needed to, would give each other a ring, and it was such an emotional talk. You know, us two <clears> just talking as two uh, that kind of peer support. Right, mate, we can't rely on the services, you know, the statutory services out there to support us. So whatever time of day or night you want, just give me a ring if you're feeling like shit and we'll talk. And that's exactly what we did. We, Mike was suicidal. Mike, he kept a journal. He was going to kill himself. Jesus Christ. Just after losing his daughter. And what was the situation? What was his family makeup? So, uh, what is his family? What is his family maker? He's got uh, so it's Mike and Helen, and uh, Beth was their seventeen-year-old daughter. He got a daughter slightly older called Emily. Uh, it was Emily who Annabelle had initially contacted through the magic of social me media. They, they'd got in, in touch, and then he got a, 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 another daughter from a previous 
previous marriage, Charlie, who's a little bit older, late 20s. Uh, but they were Beth. I never knew Beth clearly, but Beth was a talented recording artist, talented singer. She went to music college, she was 17, and uh, she got a recording contract. So she was doing really, really well. And all the gigs around Manchester, or the venues she used to play at, started to close. And she went into a pit of despair on the Friday night. And uh, this was it, was it right at the start of the pandemic. Yeah, so yeah. M died on the Sunday, yeah. and then it's the following Friday. Five days later. Yeah, yeah, five days later. And Mike came back off shift. He'd done the overnight shift when he came home and took his dog out for a walk, came back and just heard screams from inside. <coughs> his wife had found Beth. And Beth had basically taken her own life they believed just because her world was falling apart all the college had stopped all her recording contracts she thought had gone and that teenage emotional brain had just made a stupid short-term decision and Mike absolute salt of the earth character he'd you know his family home in Manchester in Sale he bought kind of a, a wreck if you're not like and then done it up beautiful old kind of Victorian style house and he'd done it all it's beautiful and taken Beth to all sorts of uh, lessons self-defense lessons for all you know to try and protect herself and Mike had just got no idea that you know the big you know the most likely thing to kill her was herself you know it wasn't something else it wasn't so Mike and I spoke over that. So we're in, now into April 2020. We're into the pandemic and we're just... Mike goes off to see his sister up in Scotland and I'm speaking to him. He's in a mess. We're both in a mess, but he's in a, a real mess. Uh, but he's supported by his... His The thing about Mike and me is we both knew that was, this was beyond us. So we both knew we needed to seek help. We both knew we didn't need to sit on it. So he went to his chaplain. He got a fire service chaplain at the airport uh, Chaplain George, who turned out to be brilliant because we met him later, uh, married to the Bishop of Derby, and she looked after us as well. So it's all it's all brilliant, it's all cool. So M Mike and I kind of kind of went through the next few weeks. I told him it was when I was talking to Mike. I told him about the letter from M. There were two things in that letter from M as well that I haven't said already. One of them was don't be ashamed of what I've done, and the other one was if other people can learn from what I've done. It's like, oh, I told Mike this. When I found that, honestly, I found that letter. It's like, it killed me a second time. Devastation. Mm. But Mike and I, I say Mike's already had rode the Atlantic. We both kind of wanted to do something. We didn't know what. We've got to do something, Tim. We've got to do something. So we went over the, you know, the pandemic. Our families are in crisis. You know, it's just shit. But we're trying to put, keep it together as dads. That's what dads do, isn't it, for your family? But it's just a nightmare. And uh, I started, I, I mentioned already, I went on a, a suicide bereavement course by mind as part of my help seeking there was an eight week and it went through all the different emotions after you've lost someone to suicide it wasn't therapy it was just about how to keep moving how to keep moving forward not moving on you'll never move on after you've lost a loved one you'll move forward and you'll take that loved one with you and that was a really powerful because it went through all the different emotions you've got after losing someone to suicide and I say the, the biggest lesson I learned from that was never to get caught in one emotion. So if there's lots of guilt and blame around suicide, as I say, and we met subsequently lots of people that were stuck in that moment of losing their loved one, seven, 10 years later, 20 years later, where they were stuck absolutely in the moment that they were so felt so much guilt that that was absolutely consuming them or they felt so much blame, you know. 
and the grief was just overwhelming. How can their loved one, their closest, dearest, their son, their daughter, their husband or whatever, have kind of turned their back on them and taken, you know, not reached out to them, but taken their own life? So, so Mike and I kind of kept doing that. But Mike phoned me up one day and he said, Tim, I've been in touch with this charity called Papyrus, which turns out to be the charity that we bought for. He said, Tim, did you know that suicide's the biggest killer of under 35s in the UK? I was going, what? It can't be. I didn't know that. Yeah. Suicide is the biggest killer. I'm going, no, that can't be. And we kind of check, yeah. And 200 school children take their, school age children take their own lives every year. What? What, in the UK? No, no. Now, I do professionally do kind of emergency planning and stuff like that. And you're going, there's not many risks out there that kind of kill 200 school children every year. Anyhow, I'm doing this course with Mind, and I'm getting into the statistics, a bit of a maths man, me, and I'm talking to the facilitator, fantastic lady, fantastic volunteer, brilliant. And she uh, she knows I'm a bit of a numbers man. I said, Could you get, how many people in the UK die by suicide? She goes, I'll get you the Samaritan's report. And she got me the Samaritan's report from 2017, I think it was. And, and this, this is a statistical report on suicides in the UK. And it always lags where we are at the moment because it has to go to the coroner's court. So it takes time for a death to go through the coronial process. And I got this report and it said 6,000 people in the UK and Ireland die by suicide every year. And I phoned Mike up and said, mate, 6,000 people in the UK are dying by suicide every year. I didn't know that. M went you know when she had her suicide attempts before no one talked it was all kind of hushed away you know we don't talk about the s word do we because it's too scary to talk about but we're losing six thousand people a year to it in the uk that's that's ridiculous well they're the ones they're the ones that recorded as suicide right so ah absolutely i have just remembered who i was talking to about this and i'm not going to recount the details of how we came about it um but the person said that if it's if there's no evidence that they were planning a suicide, that it doesn't get recorded as suicide, it gets recorded as an as misadventure. You are absolutely spot on. You are, yeah. and we didn't. So a couple of months later, a couple of months later, we had uh, a uh, uh, M and Beth's inquest on the M's was on the Friday in Norfolk. Beth's was on the Monday in in uh, Manchester and M was death by suicide uh, Beth got a narrative verdict which means there's a bit of a complex story behind it and the complex there's no note or anything like that and it isn't necessarily recorded as suicide but we met hundreds of people on the walk who'd lost a loved one and we started when we realized just what you said about how these recorded we started to ask people, your son, your daughter, what was the verdict? Death by misadventure, death by misadventure, death by misadventure. And it over and over again was death by misadventure. So exactly what you said, 6,000 by suicide, 200 school children by suicide. But how many more by you get death by misadventure? So for it to be recorded as suicide, it has yeah. to be a, unequivocal evidence that they were planning to do it and... Yeah, the, the, the has to be, it doesn't have to be of a criminal level of evidence. So like they told someone... Text or, or text note or something or like that. Note. Okay. If someone oh, just yeah. goes on the spur of the moment and takes their own life... It, or hasn't told anyone, uh, has, yeah. we've been planning it for ages. Yeah, and just haven't told anyone, yeah. I didn't know that. Okay. 
no, neither do we. So we're going, shitty death. So we're sitting on all this information and we're, Mike and I are going, right, we want to do something. So let's, let's walk in between our two homes in Norfolk and Manchester. But then the pandemic starts to hit. Uh, again you know the second wave and we can't do anything so we're just sitting on it but we want to do something we want to fight back a little bit and then then Mike uh, goes on one of the papyrus training courses and he's sitting by this young lad called Gregor and Mike had heard about this other guy called Andy Area, Cumbrian dude a bit of an outdoor man a uh, bit of a legend in papyrus though because Andy's daughter Sophie had died in December 2018 taking her own life and Andy had kind of instantly found, tried to look for a, a suicide prevention charity. Was she a bit older? Yeah, so yours Sophie was a 29-year-old nurse up in Scotland right. who had... So Beth was 17, my M was 19, and Sophie was 20, 29. Again, didn't know her. And in December 18... Uh, she had a relationship breakdown. It was her choice. Uh, she'd walked out on her husband. Uh, and as Andy says, that's not Andy and Sophie's mom were divorced, but you know, friends, but divorced. So it, a marriage breakup wasn't new in their family. And Sophie just sent them a text, sent Andy a text to say, "I love you, Dad." And then they, that was it. They, they, and she sent her ex-husband a text to tell her tell him where to find the car and they they found Sophie's body three days later 21st of December I think it was uh, 2018 four day, three days before Christmas Andy Andy's such a positive guy such a positive guy obviously blew his family apart as well what drove her to do it? The, the, they think the relationship breakdown I think the break, yeah the breakdown she thought because she, she was a really successful nurse she was getting a flat it, it, her, her professional life was good and they think it was just a relationship breakdown, and she thought she'd let everyone down. Well, I can be it. embarrassed, ashamed of it. But that's what Andy couldn't understand because he'd, you know, him and Sophie's mom, George, had split up when she was three. Uh, so, you know, why take your life over at a relationship breakdown? That your mom and dad have been in a relationship breakdown, and they still, you know, they're a good example of you know parents splitting, but then still doing everything to the best ability for the kid, and. Uh, but Andy is such a positive guy, and he said, if we don't have Christmas, we we won't do Christmas ever again. You, if you miss the first Christmas, so Sophie had died on the t- or found the body on the 21st of December. If we don't do Christmas five days' time or four days' time, next year it'll be our first Christmas. It'll be a nightmare. So they kind of did a sort of Christmas. And again, the local parish priest came round to see Andy, and he said something really good. He said, you'll, you know, you'll never move... I, the, the terminology you, 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 after losing someone, you'll never move on from Sophie. You'll move forward. And you'll always have a Sophie-sized hole in you. But what you'll do is you'll grow around that hole. And uh, that's just what Andy was right. I've got to do something. And Sophie had entered a half marathon with <coughs> her best friend. Now, Andy, if you look at photo on our website, freaking hell, Andy is not a runner now. He used to be, <laughs> but he's not a runner. So Andy uh, did a lot of training and he entered the half marathon. He got lots of support from a, a lady called Alison Freeman, who's a BBC news reporter in the Northeast. And he raised about £40,000 for Papyrus. This was in kind of early December 19, so a year before Beth and M died. And so... Going back to Mike's on this course with Gregor and his son and uh, says, do you think your dad would be interested in a walk? And Gregor's, I don't know, why didn't you ask him? So Mike phoned up and it was, this was just before Christmas, Dece- December 
so, yeah, it's December 21 now. So it was the, sorry, December 20. So the two-year anniversary of uh, Sophie's death. It was Christmas. Christmas. It was, season, yeah, it was just, everything got put on hold. Anyhow, the, the following April, March, April, Andy and Mike spoke to each other and they went for a walk and they just went for a walk up north and all this time I'm supporting Mike you know we're talking to each other through Christmases and stuff and how shit our lives are and to get through but uh, yeah it was the in the April of 2021 Mike and Andy went for a walk very emotional two dads meeting each other for the first time both lost their daughters and Mike told him about me this bloke from Norfolk and thought, I've got an idea about doing a bit of a walk to raise a bit of suicide prevention awareness and kind of get the fact that suicide's the biggest killer. Let's start talking about it. And uh, suicide's the biggest killer, sorry, of under 35s. And Mike is a shit navigator, okay? Absolutely shit. <laughs> I just, uh, and is an outdoor man, used to run an outdoor shop in Cumbria, in Keswick. I just... Uh, you know, lovely. I would have uh, thought it'd be the RAF guy being the bad navigator. But, uh, no, 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 not me. <laughs> I got my back in my experience. Yeah, it might have been, <laughs> not me. But the uh, so, so they got the Mike got an AA 2010 road atlas out. You know the page at the front of every road atlas that shows the whole UK. Yeah. Mike has literally put a dot in Cumbria in uh, Andy's house, yeah. a dot in Manchester and a dot in Norfolk. <laughs> and, <laughs> Andy, I've got a route. Oh my yeah. God. And uh, it was like, shit, okay, let's let's do it then. And Andy was like, yeah, let's do it. And uh, so we, we thought we'd we'd do a bit of uh, planning. So we, we met for the first time in about May 2021. Uh, Zoom callers, we were all doing bloody Zoom calls then. And we had a very emotionally charged meeting, but we agreed then, right, let's walk. And we could, when should we do it? Let, fuck the planning, let's just do it. Let's just do it in, in October. So kind of five months later, less than five months later, we're off. <clears throat> let's just let's just start the planning. So the walk was from, so, so what was the walk? The walk, so we, what we decided to do was walk between Andy's house in Cumbria, yeah. Mike's in Manchester, to my house in Norfolk, about 320 plus miles. <laughs> Why not? Let's just do it. <laughs> Three fat old dads. Couldn't run, Mike's knees are shot, Andy's... Yeah, we're not in a room. We'll walk. Everyone can walk. And we, we came up with the idea that it's like it's three dads walking, isn't it? It's three dads walking because they lost their daughters to suicide. And the, the three dads, three homes, 300 miles, and we try and raise 3,000 quid each. Um, raise the profile of Papyrus a bit. And if you looked at the time at Papyrus, Papyrus are very kind of northwest-based island, bit in Scotland and a bit in Wales, but very and a bit in London as well. But the thing about Papyrus, and I've got to kind of plug the charity here because anyone that's listening, plug away, mate. Yeah, plug God, away. The, the, the charity. So Papyrus is a yeah suicide prevention charity. Yeah. Uh, it does it runs a line called Hopeline Two Four Seven, and that's for anyone that is concerned about a, a young person under thirty five, or or that young person themselves can phone up. Any time of day or night now, at the time when we started to walk, it was only nine in the morning to midnight, but now it's 24-7. They can phone up this charity and they won't just speak, that they will speak to somebody that is a suicide prevention expert. They're not volunteers. These are paid professionals. They come from, they're brilliant people. They come from all walks of life. Uh, they ex-teachers, ex-mental health, ex-prison officers. And, and they've done some absolutely fantastic, but the whole idea of these people on the other is called Hopeline 247. And... You could, the, 
you can call that as a dad if you're worried about your kids. You can call that as a grandparent if you're worried about your grandparents or even your kids. If you're worried about someone and they will give you specific suicide prevention advice and the... The 16 or under? No, 35. It's young person. Young person under 35. They're defining young person as under 35. Are you there? Yeah. I feel a little bit better about myself. <laughs> I feel a little bit better. I'm only six years past being a young oh, person. God, I'm a bit further so, than that. So, so for under 35s? Under 35s. Well, that's amazing. Yeah, so for under 35s, you can call this charity and go, I'm feeling shit. I'm, I'm having suicidal thoughts. So I'd... That's the number you've got on the screen. Hopeline 247-0800-068-4141. Yeah, people can't see this. We can see this. Okay, okay. so yeah, Hopeline 2. Just I, Google. I'll, I'll put the link to this in the in Yeah, the, uh, so, so, well. so important. Yeah. So this this charity, it's only a small charity, but what, boy, does it punch way above its, its weight. Uh, so, we, sorry, the, the charity does that. It also does lots of training. It delivers suicide prevention training, which is fantastic. Different levels of it, suicide prevention awareness and right up to kind of applied suicide intervention skills which is kind of the top level and then it does a, a third thing which is influence government so it has a they've got a dude called josh who sits in government uh and, and engages with politicians and policy makers and stuff about suicide prevention can you come back to the walk a second yeah i'm gonna oh, go back to 100% want to come back on yeah the yeah cool. absolutely tell me about the walk so, right, so the walks. i would imagine i would imagine that 300 miles three guys uh, see that yeah. is a journey of self-discovery is it not? Oh God, yeah. The walk was even if he didn't have, even if he weren't on it, the reasons he were on it. So it was incredibly powerful. We 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 didn't realise how big it was going to be. So we, we planned the route. We met for the first time face to face at Mike's house, beginning of July twenty. Yourself and Andy. Me, me, Mike, and Andy face to face. We've never met before that. No, before the second of July, kind of three months before the walk, we'd never met face to face. Wow. Okay. So sp- I assume you'd already met Mike in person. No, okay. no. Of course not, because it's a pandemic. Pandemic. So we fucking so, pandemic. So yeah, we hadn't met. So we went up to Mike's house, his lovely old house. Met on the Friday night. Very emotional. Helen, his wife, cooked a massive meal. We had quite a few beers. You know, kind of quite a few beers. <laughs> on the, then on the Saturday and Sunday, we started to plan the walk. Uh, got all the maps. Andy, uh, because of his OS, sorry, because of his outdoor background, we got OS one in twenty five thousand maps for the entire route all the way down. Right. So we did massive amount of planning, uh, and then we met. We went away packed. We then met at the beginning of September, which was our official launch of the walk. Uh, still aiming for three thousand pounds each, and we met at the Seven Brothers Brewery in Manchester. Some of Mike's friends owned it, and we had. It's all around beer. Beer kind of goes a lot with our walks. Uh, and we, as you have to do, so Seven Brothers Brewery. And uh, we, we then, it was about that time that uh, Andy said, my BBC, I've got a tame BBC reporter that might be interested in this. Are you happy for me to approach them? And this is Alison who'd, who'd helped him out before. And we were like, yeah, go for it. And Alison, the first thing Alison said, I think I can get this on BBC Breakfast. It's like, oh my word. So Alison came in two days, her and a fantastic cameraman, Adam, came and interviewed Andy in Cumbria, Mike in Manchester and me in Norfolk on our village green in front of the pub uh, about what we were going to do. And that went out. We had a phone call on BBC on uh, three weeks before the walk on a Sunday saying, can one of you be on the red sofa tomorrow morning? Sure, yeah, okay. Mike went on the red sofa with the charity chief exec, a guy called Jed. Nice. And we kind of launched the the walk. And we at the time, we were at about £9,000 collectively, the three of us. We made about our three. And we'd had this big moral dilemma. Do you reckon we can push it out to £10,000 each? 
yeah, let's do it. Let's go £10,000. And I remember telling Alison that we're going to push it out to £10,000. And she just absolutely laughed at me. She goes, if this goes on BBC Breakfast, you'd be way more than that. I was like, no. Anyhow, Mike went on BBC Breakfast on this Monday morning. By the end of that day, we've gone from about 9,000 to I mean, you to start the walk? In October. So what month is this? This September. Okay, yeah. It's about September 23rd or something like that. And so it's about th- yeah. yeah, so the donations online, bear in mind we hadn't done anything yet apart from drunk lots of beer and been on BBC Breakfast, <laughs> went up to £48,000. Oh, my God. And it was like, oh, what? what? Like on the same day? On the same day. Oh, so, wow. so we're now going, oh, God, this is big, isn't it? <laughs> oh, this is big. So we 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 say that we'd only still met twice, and then the third time we met was when we started the walk. So I got on the train from Norfolk up through Preston to to, to arrive at Andy's in in Cumbria, and we all met there. But on the way up, I'm sitting on Preston train station, yeah, waiting on the connection on my kit bag, just looking like a sad old middle aged man, not don't know what's going on. And I had a WhatsApp from the charity, and that's when Daniel Craig had donated ten thousand pounds and they oh were just my like god this is on top of the 48 we've just had it's just like daniel craig and he wants to be associated with you and honestly i just burst into tears they must everyone on the on the platform must have thought what the hell's he on about you know this is bloke there and it was just you know our story had reached daniel craig it was like shitty death and he out of the blue had done out that. of the blue out of the blue and then was happy to use him as promotional absolutely absolutely he, he was happy to be you know for the press to know that daniel craig had donated ten thousand pounds for suicide prevention it's like shitty death. and the important point you know i said about the emergency line they that they, they they reckon it costs or the funding figure is five thousand sorry five pounds for each call because you're paying for the professionals and all the stuff yeah. so Daniel Craig's donation, that's 2,000 life-saving calls. Mm. It's really plenty hell. We were just bowled over. And we, we got up to uh, Cumbria, more BBC reporting on the Friday night. And then on the Saturday morning, we, we set off from Village Hall at uh, in Moorland in, in, in Cumbria, which is in the Eden Valley, beautiful part of the UK, little-known parts of the UK. We were live on BBC Breakfast and uh, setting off, and it was loads of people from the village firefighters good mike being a firefighter lots of support for us and we set off and that's when you talk about the journey of discovery or the voyage of discovery we we we'd gone about 10 yards out of the village hall and this young this old lady sorry joined us suzanne who in her 70s or something like that really slight lady with the walking poles and everything can i join you yeah i want to talk and she'd lost her daughter who'd been a, a doctor and she just wanted to walk with us and she walked with us the whole of that for about 19 miles on that first day you know i think she was 78 oh my god that is not an insignificant number of miles and we're talking for for 35 year old (laughs) (laughs) and we're talking you know bumpy ground we're up through shap and the shaps you know we're talking through cumbria and she absolutely rigidly stuck with us wow we we had uh alan hinks obe first british mountaineer to climb all 14 8,000 meter peaks he came and he's a mate of Andy's and he came and joined us and he yeah. you know what a bloke he is comes across as this really gruff but you scratch the surface and he's got you know uh, suicide or su- survival of suicide in his family and what was you know, his name? Alan Hinks yeah. uh, re- you know pro- massive mountaineer really top, top bloke and then we, we, so we'd walked about 10 yards and Suzanne came and joined us. Then we walked about another half a mile and uh, we met Amy's mom. 
Amy's mom and her husband, this lady just in, I don't know, she was in her 60s or something, just in floods of tears, absolute floods of tears. Her daughter had taken her own life on the 29th of August that, that year. And she told us the story, Amy and her husband and two kids. And uh, she was just, and she got this order of service. And Mike, Mike's such a caring character, just went, do you want me to carry that order of service all the way to, to Norfolk? Yeah, yeah, if you can. And we, we, you know, just we, we suddenly realised that there were all these suicide bereaved people that were starting to join us. Because when you lose someone to suicide, you're so isolated. You're so, so isolated. There's the guilt, there's the shame, there's the stigma around it. And all of a sudden, we were starting to, we realised we were, we were giving people an outlet that if they'd lost someone to suicide, they could walk with us. And we started to get, you know, we'd, this went along the whole whole route. But someone would be standing at the side of our route and they'd be in their walking kit and we'd say, oh, you come to walk with us? Because we've got a tracker on, you see. We've got a tracker so everyone could find us. You come to walk with us? Yeah. Start walking and then why have you come to walk with us? And it would all come out and they'd tell us about their son, their daughter, their brother, their sister or whatever. Very emotional. Some people hadn't spoken about the loss of their loved one for 70 years some of them so there was one lady I'm getting way ahead of myself yet but there was there was one lady way further down the route dad had been in the second world war soldier in the second world war come back he'd been wounded physically wounded and then when Jan was three years old in 1953 a dad just dis- disappeared Jan lived in our village did, did, just disappeared when she was 12 she was told that dad had died and then when she was in her 30s it finally came out that dad had taken his own life PTSD that would it would have been known as PTSD yeah. now. And Jan hadn't really told anyone about that until <clears throat> we met her brother and then her sister. We were, sorry, my brother and then her as we were walking and she kind of opened up and she, you know, what's that, 2021? So we're talking 1953 to 2021. Mm. So we just gave that that vehicle. But <laughs> sorry, the first day, go way back to the first day and we'll come back to Amy in a minute. Well, the is- is- sorry, the isolation is interesting because yeah. like people, people different, different cultures, different areas, different locations, you know, different kinds of families, it, that'll all play into how isolated they are. I've got a, I, I had a friend yeah. who killed himself and um, the suicide, the fact it was suicide, he did it in a foreign country and this, the fact it was suicide couldn't be mentioned. Um, I've never heard his parents actually refer to it as suicide. Everyone knows it was suicide. Right. Um, and it, the main reason was because they're very religious and they live in a very religious um, community. Yeah. And they are God-fearing, God-worshipping yes, yeah, people yeah. and they go to a church and in order for their son to have the burial and the service they wanted, yeah. if it had been suicide, the church would have said no. Rugby for Heroes brought you this podcast today. Rugby for Heroes are a not-for-profit organisation formed in 2009 in the wake of the death of Private Joe Whittaker, who was sadly killed serving on operations with the Parachute Regiment in Afghanistan. Since Joe's death, Rugby for Heroes have raised in excess of £125,000 for military charities. And they've been doing this year in, year out by organising fundraising events themed around rugby, beer and gin food, live music, and great people. They regularly hold events, and you can expect soon for a supper club to be added to their calendar. 
Their most recent event was a beer and gin festival held in Old Leventonians RFC and Leamington Spa, the home of Rugby for Heroes, and a club who recognise, as many others do, the huge impact that Rugby for Heroes has, not only on the military community, but also on the local community. You can keep up to date with what Rugby for Heroes are doing by following them on social media at rugby number four heroes rugby for heroes and get onto their website rugbyforheroes.org i strongly suggest you do get to their events and i will see you at the next event i've been to every single one of their events since i since i discovered rugby for heroes and quite frankly since they supported me through very difficult times so i hold them very close to my heart and i'm very appreciative of their support as are many other hr fans who have been touched in different ways by Rugby for Heroes over the years. Rugbyforheroes.org. That was exactly the same as Jan's dad. I think suicide was made uh, legal, if you like, in 1961. Before that, it was illegal in the UK. So that's where the term kind of committed suicide comes from, which we try not to use now. You know, people use the term committed because oh. before 1961, they committed a, a, an unlawful act. Um, a crime. A crime. Interesting. So... It absolutely plays in it. How ridiculous is that? I know. So Jan's mum had to fight to have her dad, this hero soldier, buried in a churchyard in 1953, which she did. She won uh, to do that. Why was suicide made a crime in the first place? Let's have a look at that. Because it it was to do with religion, as you say. You know, it was a crime against God to take your own life. Of course, yeah. Yeah. And, And so what if someone had attempted to take their own life... The police would come, nick them, and throw them in a cell. So you could be put to jail for attempting to take your own life rather than being given any support. So that's where the stigma, and the stigma still is. That's where you incorrectly hear people saying the word committed suicide. You don't commit suicide. You're not committing a crime. Your most complex organ in your body has just gone a bit haywire for a while. You don't commit having heart disease. You don't commit having cancer, do you? You die by suicide. Or that's uh, that's why when people say that they're selfish and all that for doing it, that's what pisses me off. Is that those people saying that? Like, no, that, that person who did that, they were ill. Oh yeah, like they were sick. Yeah, they, they made bottom a, bottom line. They made a spontaneous know, decision. Well, yeah, yeah, and regardless of how spontaneous it was, you know, it's like they, they were fucking ill at the moment they at the moment they did it, and probably seconds minutes hours days months years sometimes leading up to that they were sick to make that decision a healthy person a, a person sound in mind sound does in mind. not make that decision and don't make that decision that's uh, you're, you're jumping way ahead but yeah that's Sorry. kind of no that's that's exactly what we're we've been campaigning for post the second walk we yeah i totally agree to, to, totally I, i've been to that i've been to the stage of considering it yeah and when and in a way, in a in a way, I'm glad because of, well, sorry, because of um, what it taught me. When I look back on it and the build up to it, the months before, I was making wild decisions, right. wild. And I think back and, go, and I, some of them I recount, I recall some of the stories now and decisions I made to people like a joke. I think this is the situation I was in. I did, I did this, this, and this, and it seemed logical to me to do these things, and it, and that, and I. I and I was in that, st- and that was pretty fucking obvious to me at that time. But it still, I still allowed me to get to the stage yeah. of considering it, you know. And I, I say I'm glad about having been in that situation. I wouldn't wish it upon myself again, fucking ever. But I'm glad because it gives a clarity on other people's situations. Uh, but it's also, 
as you will know, you know, um, from talking to others and your own experience, it's extremely saddening because you realise what the mental state of people must be in who actually go through with it. The, you know, there's some real horrendous statistics that not statistics that we need to own up to as a society. One of them is one in five of us will have suicidal thoughts in our life. That's so a recent revelation to me, I didn't know that. So yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, a few months ago, I found out. It might have been you who said it to me on the phone. I think it might have been. Yeah, yeah, been. <laughs> <laughs> but I only learned that we watched, We went and watched. This was after the second, second, second World War, Second, sorry, after the first work before the second one, we went to watch a brilliant Cumbrian charity called Every Life Matters deliver suicide prevention in schools, and they were telling the eleven, twelve-year-olds about the statistics that you know one in five of us will have a suicidal thought in our lives. So rather than push it under the carpet. Why don't we talk about it? When you're in a sound state of mind, let's put a suicide prevention plan in place. Yeah, why, why, why not? And then those suicidal thoughts, that instant you're going to have that, that suicidal thought, on average, they last 15 minutes. So if you've got... If you, really? So that doubt... And we, all three of us said if our girls had taken... Before we knew this, 10 seconds out, they probably wouldn't have made the same decision. At least one of them wouldn't have made the same decision. Not saying it, all three of them wouldn't, but those downtime. We all know when we have downtimes in our life, they can really, you know, when you hit rock bottom. It's about telling our people that that rock bottom feeling doesn't last forever. It, it, you can get through it. So, yeah, so we kind of on that first walk, we a really emotional story. I said about Amy, going back to little Amy, beautiful, beautiful lady on the back of our order of service who was in a wedding dress. And the following day, we're walking. Uh, uh, and an open-top car pulls out. Mike stops. Mike will talk to anyone who's always at the back, never navigating because he's too dangerous to navigate. <laughs> and transpires, we didn't realise this at the time, but trans- transpires it was Amy's mother and father-in-law because they spoke about losing their daughter and the impact it's had on their son and the two young kids, so Kirkby Stephen. And we just stopped a little bit later at Kirkby Stephen. One of Beth's old friends uh, who's moved to that area, her mum comes and buys us some ice creams. There's loads of bikers around. We're eating our ice creams. And we just start to walk off. And Andy's carrying a big bucket full of cash, a bucket to put cash in as we're walking along. And uh, this this bloke comes out, and he's got two kids, and they're looking – the bloke looks sad, and the two kids are just, you know, looking vacant, quite frankly. Kids are about eight and four years old. And this guy comes and gives us 20 quid and puts it in his – is our pocket and we t- get talking to him transpires it's Amy's husband and the two kids we're looking at are Amy's kids oh my um, god gosh shit blew us apart mm. to see these two kids just devastated mm. just, and that's the story of our first walk we kept every single day we met mums and dads that were bereaved by suicide every single day when we met those mums and dads we were uh Ask them, you know, did you know that suicide was the biggest killer of under 35s in the UK? No. Nobody knew that their loved one was part of this horrendous statistic. And we, we kind of kept walking. We started to get quite righteous about it. Our, our, our fundraising, the fundraising went mental, by the way. It went absolutely crazy. I didn't turn off my just giving notifications by email. <laughs> on the first day <laughs> by by lunchtime <laughs> basics <laughs> by lunchtime i've got two basics when <laughs> you're on the bbc <laughs> it's just but we, by lunchtime on that saturday i had 2709 emails <laughs> it's just oh like God. shit by the end of the first day we're at two hundred thousand pounds 
Wow. And we're like, oh, we've walked. You say Nicole Kidman donated as well. So, yeah, Nicole Kidman, we're a bit further on. Nicole Kidman donates, and she was filming Aquaman. On, and we walked through Manchester and we were on BBC Breakfast as we walked through Manchester and she was filming Aquaman in London she was she saw us on the BBC oh. and she donated £10,000 straight away uh, she also then oh, the words she uh, she gave a load of words to the charity about about the girls mentioning the girls and why she was doing it and about her dad and everything like that and it was like about her dad but it, she just looked at it not as from a daughter and father relationship she, ah, uh, so she was just thinking about her dad and got just it, going got yeah it, got and just it, going yeah. uh, we had uh, so she and yeah the words are on the website somewhere you know one of our blogs they, they put on but they, she gave some beautiful beautiful uh, words all about the girls and what we were doing was fantastic we had Lou Macari, remember Lou Macari? You're too young for Lou Macari. Lou Macari, thank yeah. you. Hey, thank you. I am. I'm, I was a young person not long ago. <laughs> Six years ago, I was a young person. Young person under thirty-five. Yeah. yeah. So Lou Macari, uh, Manu footballer, played for Scotland in the 1978 World Cup, and he came and met us at Old Trafford as we went through. He he donated ten thousand and one pounds because he wanted to beat <laughs> beat Daniel Craig and Nicole yeah. Kidman. I think I did the same. Just one more. Yeah, yeah. But he did some. Oh, again, we met him. He'd lost his son to suicide. So here's oh, no. this massively fantastic footballer, achieved everything he possibly could in his footballing world, and wow, what an inspirational bloke that bloke is. He told us about his son, but then he also told us about the the charity that he runs in Stoke, looking after homeless people. He runs a big warehouse, and it's got forty seven pods in. Each pod, you can put a homeless person in, and it gives them an address, and it gets them back on their feet so they can start. Wow, what an inspirational bloke. Lou Magari is it, just brilliant just you know absolutely fantastic that's fantastic yeah, idea. yeah absolutely brilliant so what's it called that charity oh, I can't remember just no, Lou, sorry, Lou, Lou, Lou Macari okay. look at Lou Macari charity homeless charity in Stoke yeah. uh, and we met loads of other charities as well uh, the, the small charities they've all been set up after losing people another one is uh, start off as the Royal Bear Force now the Bear Force an aircraft spotter called Rico Richard Bland had lost his son, uh, Andrew, in 2013, I think it was. Mm -hmm. uh, and he had written a book all about uh, this bear called Wing Commander Andrew Bear. It's all about children's mental health. Uh, and he's now then set up the Bear Force Foundation, which is a charity that's going forward to help support young people. All these other charities came out to support us on this walk, which was incredible. But all the way through, we were meeting, even when we got to the finish line in our village in Shoulder, kind of two weeks later, we'd walked 300 miles, 320-something miles. Uh, we got onto the village playing field, which is, I don't know, half a mile from the village green where BBC Breakfast and ITV and everyone was going to be live on our village. It was incredible. But we, we got through the, uh, we, we got to the village green, sorry, the village playing field where I used to play football and stuff. And a friend of a friend was meeting us there because his son Ryan had taken his own life just under three weeks before that. And the, he, him and his wife just wanted to meet us and just see how the hell they existed. How, mm. You know, what, how, they can, how they could function, how mm. they could function. Everywhere we went on that first walk, we got to the Village Green. So this is October 2021. And Alison's on there live on BBC Breakfast. <clears> and she <throat> goes, what, what does it feel like to finish? And we, we got, by the end of the first walk, with gift aid and stuff and direct donations from Daniel Craig, etc., we're about eight hundred thousand pounds we'd raised for the charity, which was frigging massive, miles more that's, than this. That's huge. Yeah, huge, Ma massively changing for the charity as well. What does it feel like to you finish? And we, 
we haven't finished. We've finished the walk, but we're now carrying the voices of all these suicide bereaved parents, brothers, sisters, because no one's talking about police suicide. More importantly, no one's talking about suicide prevention. And we need to. So, so what do you what do you think needs to happen? So, yeah. So we wrote to the government, big time, and we wrote to the government and said, uh, you know, suicide's the biggest killer. Why aren't we talking about it? And we got a brilliant letter back from Gillian Keegan, who was a secretary. No, she was a minister in health at the time. Come and meet us. And we got another one back from education, which was appalling. Uh, Why? Because it just said, oh, suicide can be taught in schools. So our whole point was what needs to happen is if we've got this risk in society, we need to address it. So let's put, you know, the RSHE stroke PSHE curriculum at school. Yeah. It's got mental health on it, but let's talk about the S word. Let's take it. Let's let's get suicide prevention into schools. So if we get suicide, because we've seen it delivered in schools, we've seen it delivered really gently, really age appropriate. Can I yep. see when we, when we first talked about this? Yeah. I was thinking, yeah, and I'm I must be wrong to think it because I'm assuming you more than me, right? But I was thinking, surely if you're gonna if you're gonna expose more children to suicide, the thing, yeah, the thing, then yes, it word. would increase the likelihood of suicide in children or young people or children at least. Has your your kids got mobile phones? Yeah, you've you've given them access to that world as soon as you give them a mobile phone and. Do you do you want your kids to learn about suicide prevention from adults, or do you want them to learn about it from the internet? It's That's a great fucking point. Every kid that we give a mobile phone to, the youngest suicide we heard was eight, eight years old, and we heard lots. I met lots of parents of eleven years old. That's primary t- school. Yeah, had taken their own lives, and. So we're not talking about suicide. What we're talking about teaching the kids is suicide prevention. If that's the biggest risk to our young people, why don't we tell them about it? They've included mental health in the curriculum, but they don't mention the S word. If one in five of us have suicidal thoughts in our lives, if we don't teach us, our kids, to handle, how to handle those thoughts and the adults aren't mentioning the S word, then where are they going to look for it? It's the gonna... logic of not mentioning the S word, the logic that I had until exactly. about 30 seconds until ago. Until about 30 <laughs> seconds. So it's really interesting. And we'll come on to... Yeah, we kind of... We ended up having... Going for the second walk. Okay, do you want me to fast forward through the... Kind of, I'm yeah. conscious of your time. That's it's right, near, that's cool. It's uh, quarter to 11. Okay. No, so we... We... That... After that... We wrote to the government and we went and sat down in front of a minister, Gillian Keegan, who was lovely. She's got suicide in her family close to her. And she, we said, why don't we put suicide prevention on the school curriculum? She worked in health at the time. She said, get it, government works in stovepipes. So hard to get into education. And the letter from education was, back was really poor. Our kid, schools can teach it to older pupils if they want. Who was the but education minister? That was, it was signed off by Nick Gibb, who we later met. And he was lovely. So, but it was officials that wrote it, uh, and he was the schools minister when he wrote it. Anyhow, we then were invited down to Papyrus offices in London to speak to Sajid Javid when he launched his draft cross-government suicide prevention strategy. That was in the summer of twenty twenty-two, and he uh, he'd lost his brother to suicide. So he massively for you know that whole nation approach suicide prevention 
And we were quite buoyed up by this, but we'd met Andy Burnham as in Mayor of Manchester, Mayor of Greater Manchester, and he'd said to us, he was, he was just like you, he was a bit like, oh, you're talking about the S word, oh, should we? And then he'd done his research and all the academic research out there that's out there, and we met loads of academics and we met loads of charities, talking about suicide does not cause suicide. What we're talking about is suicide prevention and giving people the skills to handle those thoughts so they don't go through with it. And we're not allowing, if our kids Google stuff or look at stuff on their phones, we've already got there as the adults to say, look, if, you, if you're having those thoughts, these are how you handle those thoughts. And these are ways to, these are people who can support you, just like Papyrus, that type of thing. And other charities, it's not the only charity, there are other charities out there. Point them to Samaritans, point them to Every Life Matters, there's other charities out there. But let's not brush it under the carpet anymore. Bringing you the show today are the Aardvark Group. The Aardvark Group are a hugely experienced defence and security company who develop solutions for post-conflict zones and a complex world. They have been developing and delivering highly impactful technical solutions since 1982 through the deployment of innovative technologies, techniques, services and people. They've been saving lives and protecting people and assets against the global threat of explosive ordnance for decades. Their equipment and their products and their technologies are developed by operators, for operators. They've got a huge proportion of their workforce who are ex-military and they are massive proponents of the ex-military value within the industry. They answer the needs of states, NGOs, international or regional institutions and private corporations. The Aardvark Group first became known to myself and to HR very early on when I was introduced to the CEO, David St. John Clare, who at that time was putting in significant personal effort to raise money for military charities at the height of the Afghan campaign. The Aardvark Group commits just as much energy as David within the company to support the military community, and this has been demonstrated through the Armed Forces Employee Recognition Scheme Awards. You can find out more about the Aardvark Group at aardvark.group, and you can follow them on social media. They're on Twitter, they're on Instagram, and they're on Facebook. Simply search for the Aardvark Group and you will find them. I strongly suggest you do, and they will certainly appreciate the follow and the engagement from HR fans. Aardvark.group. And we came up with this petition, uh, which Andy Burnham helped us write, because when he was Secretary of State, for, for Labour, uh, he said, if I've got a petition behind me, it was on, uh, then I'd got evidence then from the public that they wanted this to happen. So him and his team in Greater Manchester, and they've been doing some great stuff in Greater Manchester around suicide and suicide prevention, just locally. It really, the resources they've thrown at it is brilliant. Anyhow, we thought that's brilliant, but what we wanted to do was take our voice, if you like, this campaign, accidental campaign, across the country. So we said, we'll do another walk in 2022 and we'll start in Northern Ireland do a quick walk in Northern Ireland then we'll fly we'll cheeks we've got to fly across the, the sea there the Irish Sea but we'll go to Edinburgh start in Holyrood walk from Holyrood down to the Senate in Cardiff then across to Westminster about 600 miles for three fat old blokes that's quite good going for us it's going to take us about a month and uh, we went to start on the 8th of uh, September last year and it was the day the Queen died and it was like Oh shit! We did a bit in Northern Ireland, but the eighth of sorry October when when the Queen died, we didn't know what 
to do. We we were at Mike's house. You were house. ready to start. We were. At, I'd gone up to Mike's house. We were on the eighth of October. We're being interviewed by ITV and BBC in Mike's house in Manchester. Then flying out to Northern Ireland the following morning, and we're going. What do we do? The Queen's just died, and the BBC and the ITV didn't know what to do with us. And it's like, well, if we delay it, we're going to have to delay it for six months, a year, or whatever, because we've got all the logistics sorted out for it. We're doing this one. The, there's no support team. It's us three doing it on the back of a fag packet. Where were you staying each night? Anyone that wanted to put us up. So we just went to people, we, we friends, family, connections through the military, uh, connections, we, just connections all over the place. And then where we didn't know anyone, we put something else on social media and strangers would look after us. So you're looking at 20 miles a day? 20 miles a yeah. day, 20 to 25 miles a day, depending yeah. on what we're doing, uh, which for three old blokes is all right going, you know, it's all yeah, right going yeah. from here. And... Uh, I mean, if it was three power edge blokes. Yeah, you'd be yeah. 50 miles yeah. a day, yeah. <laughs> I, I should obviously have, I should have got a taxi <laughs> <laughs> should have flown it yeah so we, we we did that but the thing that got us was on the first walk Prince William had written to us individually wow and really thanked us for what we were doing and said how he was massively supporting what we're doing and so we said well if Prince William's behind us on the first walk he'll behind us, be behind us on this one so let's just go for it and what we decided to do we, we carry these flags and we furled up the flags as a mark of respect to her majesty and we kind of did it all very low key so we went across, did the bit in Northern Ireland. We were meant to start outside Holyrood, but that was just as the Queen's coffin was coming in there. So we spoke to the police and said, well, you know, where can we start? Like we started about a mile and a half away, and we just started the long trek south. Uh, and until the Queen's funeral, everything was put on hold. But we just kept walking very low-key. It was very low-key. And after the Queen's funeral, kind of the BBC then got into us again massively. And uh, we launched the petition because the petitions committee at the parliament, they were fantastic, massively supportive of us. Uh, they launched it. We got to 30,000, quite quickly, 30,000 signatures. And it was a repeat of the the second one. We were port- supported massively by lots of politicians along route who came and walked with us from all, all sides of the house and from all different political persuasions because suicide prevention absolutely unites everyone. I, it just just a huge walk and it took us about 30 days we left uh scotland on world suicide prevention day which was the 10th of september and we arrived in uh westminster on the 10th of october world mental health day oh, so good it was a really really great and we cr- crossed the line we were supported people like the chief constable of british transport police lucy dorsey who'd been the deputy boss of the met police she came and walked with us all the way through london Lots of her officers have to deal with suicides on the railway. Mm. So she was massive. And we had so many charities, just loads of people supporting us. Anyhow, we got to the end and we crossed the line. And that night we went through, cracked just as we we're in the pub as we finished. We're live on BBC Breakfast as we got across the line. Uh, we we're raising money as well, but we got to over 100,000 signatures on, on the, the petition. On the petition. We ended up finishing with 160,000. So, when was this last year then? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, with 100,000 signatures, government have to consider it for debate. And so they went away and we got an email saying, yeah, we're going to have a debate. So uh, we, we then met the MP that was leading it, a guy called Nick Fletcher, Don Valley MP. There's another MP that was massively supportive, but lots of MPs were supportive of us. But uh, Neil Hudson, Dr. Neil Hudson's and his MP in Cumbria, a big rural health guy, vet, massively behind us. Uh, he put an early day motion in at the same time. The early day motion is for backbench MPs to sign it to say they support basically us doing the three dads walking. And also he wants uh, mental health first aid in workplace settings, which is brilliant. So he got cross- We have that already, do we not? 
Pardon? We have that already, do we not? Mental health first not, aid in workplace settings? No, mandatory. Not oh, mandatory. mandatory. So you okay. know like you have first okay. aiders, physical for, first aiders. We have, aid. men, we have uh, mental men, health first aiders at my, where I work. Yeah, but yeah. Th- he wants to make it a mandatory. Yes, yeah, not mandatory. mandatory. Okay, he wants okay. to have it in, like you have a... That's a, good. That's yeah, good. Which, which is yeah. cool. So we, we started to meet these backbench MPs of the uh, petitions committee. Nick Fletcher, Don Valley MP, being, being one of them. He... There's cross-party group, and the, I'll lead on that, he said. And he met us, and he was exactly what he said, you know, does talking about suicide cause it? So he went away and did his research and came back. And the second time he met and went, no, I'm really happy to lead on this debate. We've got to get this through. We've got to get this through. And so we had the debate in, in part. It's in Westminster Hall, and there's a big committee room, and you get all cross-party MPs, and they all stood up and debated, should suicide prevention be a compulsory part of the school curriculum? Every single MP got up and said yes. Every wow. single MP got up and said they told us personal stories of loved ones in their families or constituents' uh, suicides. They all quoted the Office of National Statistic- Statistics figure that I've just said that suicide's the biggest killer of under 35s in the UK. And they all said we've got to do something. It was summed up by the uh, Shadow Schools Minister. Uh, and then Steve Morgan from Labour, and then Nick Gibb, the guy that written that letter, who had met as well, summed it up from the government and said, we're doing this, that, and the other, uh, and we're looking into this. And all the MPs afterwards, after the debate closed down, came to us and said, just keep going, chaps, just keep putting the pressure on, just keep putting the pressure on. So Neil Hudson and his MP asked a question in PMQs about does the Prime Minister support the three dads? And it was amazing. The Prime Minister said, who was the PM at the time? It's Rishi Sunak. It was Rishi there. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's, I can't remember. Yeah, it's, it's so much change. Like, well, that's why we had the petition because there was so much turmoil in government. It was like, yeah. oh my God. But they asked it, uh, Neil asked it of Rishi Sunak, the PM, and the PM responded. And we were just expecting to get a, yeah, endorsement. Yeah, go for it. No, I'd love to meet the three dads. Let's sort it out. Oh, wow. And he invited us to number 10. So we ended up going to number 10. And at the same time, the stuff with the petition had been going on and we'd been invited to see Gillian Keegan. Now, Gillian had been in uh, education. Sorry, she'd been in uh, health and social care as a minister. For, we've got suicide prevention. She'd now been promoted and she's Secretary of State for Education. Oh, incredible. So she wanted to see us. Incredible. So we ended up going and having tea in the garden of number 10. We're, and the first thing the PM said to us, just us and Neil Hudson, BBC were there floating around. First thing the PM said to us was, "I can't imagine I'm the daughter. Sorry, I'm the father of two young girls. Right, what can I do to help?" And we sat with him for half an hour, just chat, chewing the cud about how, why isn't suicide prevention on the school curriculum? Why don't we, as a society, was it a private conversation or was it recorded anyway? Uh, it was private conversation, but the the BBC were around around there, so it's on it, it's on our blog. The bits of it are okay. Yeah. So, yeah, there's the meeting on there, and it was all on BBC News and everything like that. Uh, and the, the, the PM w- was really behind us. I said to him, you know, I said about that 6,000 suicides a year, and I asked him how many people we lose on the roads every year. And every death is tragic on the roads, but we put so much effort. We, we lose 1,500 people-ish 
per year on the roads. Every death is tragic. I'm not taking anything away from that. Yeah. But we put so it much effort. Just how much a problem suicide is. Yeah. But we put so much effort into road safety. That's my point. As we design yeah. cars with airbags, with seatbelts, with you know all the crash protection around it, we put speed limits in place. We make people have driving tests. We have DVLA to check people's health conditions. Yet we lose four times that amount to suicide. And it's really more than four times that amount. Yeah. And he was just like, oh, okay. Uh, but while we were there, Gillian Keegan popped into number 10, as you do. And, hi, dads, how are you doing? And she kind of came down the, she came down the <laughs> did stairs. Did she say it like that, though? She did. She did. <laughs> but I can't, I'm not going to do it in her. She, she's got a, a really, you know, her Liverpoolian scousy accent. I'm not going to do it like that. I want you to try it. I want you to <laughs> hey, try dads. It. hey, dads. Hey, dads. It's me. And it was. She, she, bless her. She, so the PM had just disappeared off. And she, you know, the, the, the patio where all the rule breaking occurred yeah. at the back. She bounced through some patio doors and ran down the steps and gave us a big hug and then spoke to us for about 30 minutes impromptu Brilliant. with this so and she said, i'm meeting you in two weeks time aren't i yeah 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 so in two weeks time he went to go and sit down exactly. with her half hour meeting was about an hour and a half with her senior officials and we were just saying how can we get the conversation seems to have turned from should we get suicide prevention into the school curriculum to oh. how and we've met loads of experts so we got the, the thing that's set up after that, chaired now by Nick Gibb, the same minister who is Nick Gibb, is a real wants quite rightly so wants to get all the evidence properly behind him just to dispel all the myths that you're talking about. You know that su talking about suicide causes suicide. So we've had loads of government experts and experts that we've found get round a table with them on a series of roundtables, and there's a, a draft. Uh, curriculum, sorry, yeah, curriculum that's being produced for public consultation, which is due out any time now. Amazing. Which we're going to then send out. All the 160,000 people who signed our petition, the petitions committee are going to send it out to them. And our whole thing is if we can get our young people talking about suicide prevention when they're 10, 11, 12. On, well, am I still slightly yep. sceptical, not sceptical at all, but like, ugh knowledgeable of it yeah because i think that's the that's it's the key, it? it's what, knowledge it's, of it isn't it what, it's not trying to make people experts it's trying to make people say yeah. if you're having that s word thought if you're having that thought like yeah. you don't want to be here you reach out you're not on your own having that thought and that's all it's about yeah, exactly. it's just about destigmatizing exactly. it knowledge knowledge yeah. is just about that yeah. but imagine if we can get our kids doing that when they're you know young it it won't take long before that bleeds through society and you know, so they in ten years' time they'll be teachers, they'll be in all the workplaces, they'll be huge in the military, impact. huge impact. and that will absolutely transform. Huge so impact. when people are having that down time in their lives for whatever reason, relationship breakup or just stress at work or failing at work or failing exam or whatever it is, whatever that trigger is, money problems, there's a chance that some of them will reach out. And I and we know that talking about suicide and more importantly suicide prevention saves lives. I can give well you it's it's something that's going to be measurable, right? If uh, we we are coming yeah, right, yeah. so um so it's something you measure if when that gets brought into the curriculum, in ten years time when those kids uh, are becoming adults and they've been in, they've yep. been adulting for yep. a while, five years, six or seven years you should see the suicide rates decline. Yeah. You'll be able to see the fruits of your labour, and hopefully that is the case. You know? So we we discovered this quite... We were 
at a Keswick Mountain Festival, we'd been asked to talk. It was in between the two walks. It was the first time we'd spoken face-to-face. We'd done lots of Zoom calls with people. And we gave this talk. It was peeing it down with rain outside. So we had about 150 people in the tent. So it would have been about two people in the tent if it hadn't been peeing it down with rain outside. But we had 150 people in the tent. And we had lots of parents. We spoke about just the first walk. Lots of parents then took their young kids outside to see the papyrus stand. And these are kids at 8, 9, 10 saying, look, look, kids, if you're having thoughts like you don't want to be here, there's people that can help you. But the most, oh, the, the, the thing that actually cut me to the core was there was a guy waiting. After we finished talking, there was a guy waiting behind. There was a group of people talking to me, slowly kind of coming forward and talking to me one-to-one. And a guy, in the, about 25, 26, 27, uh, who was looking a bit disheveled, kind of came to the front. And he was the last person to talk to me. He just looked me in the eye. I said, I came up to Cumbria to kill myself today. I saw you were talking. I came into the tent, heard you talk. I can't go through with it now. I just can't. And he went, God, I just gave him a hug, burst into tears. He burst into tears. And then Andy and Mike, exactly the same, you know, gave him a big hug. And the dude donated to us about three days later, just £10 each, but just said, thanks for that. You saved me today. Just And that's just by talking about suicide prevention. We've had so many emails from parents and grandparents of people that because they've seen us, they've reached out to the charity, they've got the support from suicide prevention professionals, and six months later, their kids are now living a, a fulfilled life. Mm. They've got through that just because they reached out mm. and sought support. How can people help you, and how can people help push the, push the progress on bring it into the curriculum so there's us if you want to donate just go to three dads walking online just google three dads walking and there's a but and all that money just goes straight to the charity uh goes straight to papyrus and i say every five pounds supports a, a a call to hopeline that hopeline because of the money we've raised they got expansion plans the charity that that's now 24 7 which which is perfect and then look out for the uh the 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 uh, consultation, if you like, which should be launched about this new, the, the public consultation that's going to be launched about the new curriculum. How can people look out for it? As soon as that goes live, so we'll put another link on our website. Okay. Yeah, we'll definitely put a link on our website. What about social media? Yeah, we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, and we're on Three Dads Walking. Yeah, Three Dads Walking. Just you're on Three Dads. Yeah, X, yeah. whatever it's called. Yeah, Twitter. X, yeah, X, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah X. Oh, you're so with it with the youth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, it's uh, it's been a. It, we never expected to be in this position where we're trying to change government policy you know we literally set out two years ago to like you say what do something for us on a personal level which is so important but it's turned into a we can change society we can we can help people out and we can help our kids out we can help the the next generation out because there's so many of them suffering. yeah as, as you know as terrible as the the roots of um of what you're doing are as terrible as the, you know, the origins of it are um what you're doing is a beautiful thing. Thank you. You know, and uh, it will undoubtedly have saved lives already. Well, you just explained yeah, that. The gentleman yeah. was correct to kill himself. And, yeah. and and they're just the ones you know about. And yeah. there'll be countless others that you don't know about. And if you think about when this comes into the curriculum, and in five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years time, and anybody who's able to contribute and support you in it, and sees that suicide figure coming down, which undoubtedly it will, Jesus Christ! You know it will, it will, it will. All the effort will have been worth it, and and perhaps you know there will be something 
that uh, something extremely positive that will have come from the three of you, the extreme heartache that you've, you, you and your families have all gone through. Yeah, you know, yeah. We're pre- and it's all the other parents we've met as well because it yeah. was their voices that have just kind of spurred us on to go. Hang on a minute. This is this isn't just us three. It's a societal issue that we need to address, and we do with every other risk. Let's do it with this. Yeah. Right. Keep doing what you're doing. If anyway, if I can help in any way, let me know. You're a star. Cheers, you. Lovely to be here. That's it. If you enjoyed this episode, why not become a H-Hour patron? H-Hour patrons get exclusive access to premium content. There are private interviews with previous guests and with this guest that nobody will see except for the H-Hour patrons. So before this podcast was recorded, I recorded an exclusive Q&A, a shorter interview structured around eight questions. All the questions were chosen by patrons beforehand, and that interview is online now for patrons. That happens every time. Patrons also get access to all of the episodes before anyone else. They get advanced viewing of the episodes, and you also get other perks and bonuses. All of the information is on charliecharlie1.com. Just hit the menu item become a patron it'll show you everything there including access to the h hour discord community and private patron only channels on there so go to charliecharlie1.com and hit the menu item become a patron easy peasy thank you for being a supporter subscribe to the channel and i will catch you on the next episode